Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, Wedge Antilles leads an attack on Bill Bringy, but of course, nothing goes to plan. Meanwhile, Corin and Tahiri lead a small group of Yuzhan Vong to Zanama Seacott and discover a secret that could change everything about the war. It's The Final Prophecy by Greg Keyes, the penultimate book in the New Jedi Order series. And joining me to talk about the book today is Matt. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Hello, loungers. Well, Matt, we're winding down the story here. How have you been enjoying your reread up to this point? Well, uh, excitedly, this is not reread at this point. Uh, I didn't finish back when I was reading these, the last, I think three books of the series, at least the last two final prophecy came out in 2003. That was right about the time I was graduating high school and getting ready to go to college and everything. And they just fell off my map. So this is the first time I've read the final prophecy. It'll be the first time I'm reading the unifying force. So it's all exciting for me. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed there. And there's a lot of characters in these books that we haven't seen for a few books. And I'm really hoping for like a solid payoff for all of them. I want to see satisfying ends to every arc. And uh, it's overwhelming me a a tad. (laughs) So without going into anything spoilery, because we will analyze the book in the second half of the show, how have you enjoyed the first two of these final three books that you hadn't read before? Loving them. I really liked The Final Prophecy. I'm so glad I get to cover it with you. Awesome. Well, listener, Matt is the co-host of the Davos Fingers podcast with Scott, another one of our New Jedi Order commentators. And Matt, you guys just recently posted a new episode, correct? Yep, we got a new one out, ready to consume. Um, We'll talk more about where to find those at the end of this episode. But we're still covering The King Killer Chronicle. Uh, it's a book by Patrick Rothfuss, a book series by Patrick Rothfuss. We're doing book one, The Name of the Wind, right now. Well, before we get into today's book here on the Star Wars Legends Lounge podcast, Matt, let's go over some listener questions. We have two emails today. The first comes from the Jedi Librarian, who says, Which of the original Legends book covers are your favorites? I know that some covers, like The Courtship of Princess Leia, have been redone a few times over the years with reprints and the release of the Essential Legends collection. The Courtship of Princess Leia cover has been done at least three times, the original version being Leia in the wedding dress, the second one being a Return of the Jedi-style cover with the characters in Endor camouflage and a Rancor, 
And finally, the Essential Legends cover with Leia in a wedding dress again. Matt, did we just get an email from Jocasta New, the Jedi librarian? I think we did, but minus the sass. Yeah, minus Jocasta the sass. Jocasta New is, is sassy as, as I'll get out. But <laughs> All right, I'll let you answer this first then, Matt. Uh, what are your favorite Legends book covers? And if we expand the question just a bit, are there any covers that you just aren't a fan of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if it's okay, I'll start with the ones I'm not a fan of so we can end on a positive note. I'm pretty that, sure you and I will have at least one that's the same that we are not a fan of, of the okay. Legends cover. Yeah, yeah. One to three, for sure. <laughs> you notice this, Aaron? In general, a lot of those early EU covers feature just basically repurposed images of Star Wars characters in poses from the films. A lot of the covers, particularly the paperbacks, a lot of those covers are just images from the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're re an artist has recreated it or something, and they do a, a dandy job in many cases. But it's Han with his blaster or something, and you could totally trace it back to an actual scene in the film. And it's always Luke, Leia, and Han. The three of them are always on every cover. Absolutely. <laughs> that being said, some that are particularly bad, the Jedi Academy trilogy... Particularly book two, The Dark Apprentice, that is an awful cover. Han Solo's eyes are like kind of off. It's ah, just not a fan. Um, Darth Bane, the original. Oh, the second one. Rule of two. Rule of two is so bad. It's not the same artist who does the first one, Path of Destruction, and the last one. Okay. Okay. who, whoever the artist is for the second one, it, it's it's just terrible. It is Why so bad. Why did they do that? Why I did don't they know. get the second artist? And I will say the upgrade in the cover art for the Essential Legends collection of Rule of Two is a bigger upgrade than any of the other Essential Legends collections that we have. That is a, that is a work of art on uh, for Rule of Two or the Essential Legends collection. Gorgeous. I bought all three of the Essential Legends for those books in large part because of the Dynasty of Evil. I remembered it. I remember the last one's called Dynasty of Evil. You've got such good memory with this stuff. I do not at all. Number one, though. What is it, Aaron? I'm going to let you say it. Is it Star Wars Galaxies? Ruins of Dantooine? Nailed it. The screenshot from the computer game. It is just, that's all it is. It's a screenshot. And it's not even a good screenshot. No, it's just a handful of stormtroopers. And Listener, I, I understand a lot of you listeners are younger than Matt and I. We're talking about um, computer graphics from the late 90s slash early 2000s. 95 maybe? <laughs> Sometime around there, maybe 98. But uh, yeah, that's what we're talking. It's just, it's like three stormtroopers. One of them is shooting off to the side and that's it. That's That's the cover. That's the cover. It's like they went, oh crap, a cover. We forgot a cover. Crap, crap, crap. And some intern just like logged into the game really quick, screenshot, send it off to the publisher. Steven, Steven, we need a picture right now. (laughs) Grab something. It's awful. All right, so we've made fun of a few. Yeah. Uh, one or two of your favorites, Matt. What are one or two um, of your favorites? I do like, despite the fact that it's the repurposed images of Star Wars characters, I do like that Courtship of Princess Leia cover. Actually, I like both of them, but I do like the one of, of Leia in her Endor gear. That one's really cool. That's the paperback. 
That's the that paperback. Paper, yes, yeah, correct. Um, Drew Struzan is a is it was one of those common cover artists, and I like a lot of his stuff. Dark Saber, that cover's really good looking. Uh, the Black Fleet Crisis trilogy, those three covers, particularly book one, are very cool. Even though the books aren't that great, but I think my favorites are from the the Rogue Squadron and Wraith Squadron. All oh, the the action shots of just uh, of the fighter pilot, and 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 you're a fighter pilot guy. You're a fighter yeah, pilot you guy. Can sit and look at them, and 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 interpret a story just from looking at the cover of the book dogfights on them and and then it's fun to try to pin down the the moment in the book that the cover is referencing what about you um okay so three quick ones that off the top of my head and maybe i'm a little biased because i think it's one of the better books but i do like in the new jedi order series that we're doing here for the show I just like the cover of Traitor that's got Jason's head. Taking up most of it. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know why. Um, there's one in the last long series of Legends, the Fate of the Jedi series. Uh, one thing I do like about those covers specifically is there's a consistency to those covers. I don't think it's Omen. Man, I wish I had the book in front of me now. But I think it's one. it's one of the ones that shows the new Sith character. I think that's a really nice cover. And for a book that isn't everyone's favorite, and it's not my favorite either, I think Children of the Jedi has a pretty good-looking cover. Um, Again, like you said, it's got a few repurposed pictures from the characters of the original trilogy, but I've... I always thought that cover was pretty interesting. It's Luke and Callista. Yeah. You got sand people on it. Yeah, it's got it's got Callista's like ghost like visage over top of it. I like I like the shot of the sand people on Tantooine down in the corner. And that that's one of the ones where the, the paperback and the hardback have the same cover. And that's by our boy Drew as well. Did did we nail the ones that you don't like? Did we already get those ones? Yeah, those are the two the two big ones. The two big ones are Darth Bane, Rule of Two, and Galaxies, Ruins of Dantooine. Ruins of those Dantooine. are the, the two worst ones, in my opinion. Uh, just <laughs> not a fan of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we get to your second email? This one comes from Captain Angel Bravo. Hello, Captain. He says, I or they say, I jumped on the train in September and was blown away from your infectious friendliness and passion. Mm. I have three questions and one suggestion. All right. Question one. Be honest. Have you ever watched the holiday special in its entirety? Fondly, I call it Star Wars The Holiday Kobayashi Maru. Uh, I've never watched all of it, buddy. No, I never have. And I don't think I ever will. You know, I hear all about how terrible it is and how the people within Star Wars did not enjoy making it, that George Lucas didn't enjoy it. The only parts I've ever seen, um, I saw the Boba Fett animated part of it, uh, that small little section, and um, maybe five to ten second bits and pieces of a handful of other scenes. And uh, yeah, that's it. I don't think I'll ever watch it. Okay, let me ask you this. Well, let uh, Captain Angel Bravo ask you this. 
Have you ever, or no, who is a better character, a young Leia or Rey? I think that depends on who you ask. I think folks of my generation would say that Leia is one of their foundational characters. But when I talk to my 13-year-old niece, she only wants to talk about Rey. That is by far her favorite character. Um, I wouldn't say either's better than the other. I enjoy Leia more because I have had more time with Leia. That's funny. Uh, well, it's not funny. It's an insightful answer, and it's exactly the same avenue I pursued as I was thinking about this. Leia is not only one of my favorite Star Wars characters, she's one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. I've been around her a long time, and so I'd probably prefer her more. Um, I wonder if we're talking about, like, young Leia from the Kenobi series? Like, are we talking seven-year-old Leia? Or are we talking 18-year-old Leia from A New Hope? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I really enjoyed young Leia on the Kenobi series. That I had some issues with the series overall, but I did like young Leia. And, uh, Captain, if you want more of young Leia, now she's a little bit older, the young adult novel by uh, Claudia Gray, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. That's a really good book for a young adult book. book. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, new canon books for sure. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to go with young Leia as well. Okay. Question number three, have you ever watched Star Wars fan films on YouTube? And if so, which ones? I think maybe I have watched one or two. I couldn't tell you which ones. But to be honest, I don't really have that much interest in fan films. I think I did see one that someone made. It was a com- I'm pretty sure it was a computer animated X-Wing film that was like five to six minutes long. I couldn't tell you the name of it. But other than that, I don't think I've ever watched a, a Star Wars fan fan film. Yeah, I appreciate the work that probably goes into them, but I haven't either. Uh, Captain, if you've got any good recommendations, maybe send them me and Aaron's way. We could check them out. Sure, send an email. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they left a suggestion for us, and the suggestion is this. Let us, the listeners, write fan synopses, and you pick the top three and then you read them. Then let us vote for number one. Just the suggestion to keep things fresh. Sure. I mean, anyone who wants to email the show with a question or comment, fan synopsis. Now, we haven't had any this year, but in the past we've had people record their own audio question or audio comment that's like two, three, four minutes long, and I've played it on the show. So if you see a book on the schedule, i put the schedule up at the beginning of the year on Twitter, on the show's Twitter account. So if you see a book on there that you want to read and you want to write or record a short fan synopsis for, I'll read it on the show. Uh, As much fan participation as I can get. Nice. Well, thank you for the email, Captain. And again, listener, if you want to have an email read on the show, like Captain Angel Bravo, or the Jedi Librarian, Jocasta New, maybe, maybe, send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. And stay tuned to the end of the show today when we have some new Star Wars character squadrons. I love reading those. 
But now it's time for today's book, The Final Prophecy by Greg Keyes. Matt, you ready to do this? As foils are locked in attack position. Well, grab yourself a drink. Not while you're flying. Not while you're flying. But once you land, grab yourself a drink, and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Hear the voice of prophecy, Naminor proclaims to the shamed ones of the Yuzhan Vong. He loathes his followers, but they revere him as the prophet Yusha, the one who promises redemption through the power of the Jedi. And it is there, in the lower levels of the world once called Coruscant, that he announces his latest vision, that of a living planet where they, the shamed ones, walk as one with the Jedi a planet that will be both their salvation and supreme overlord Shimra's downfall. Elsewhere, Tahiri Vela arrives on Dagobah. It's a planet untouched by the war and teeming with life. She's come to explore the dark side cave and hopefully learn more about her new self. But Tahiri quickly learns that she's not alone. A group of shamed ones have tracked her ship and wish an audience. To complicate matters further, a group of Yuzhan Vong warriors also arrives, hell-bent on executing the heretics. Tahiri rescues one of the shamed ones, but he's mortally wounded. As he lay dying in her arms, he asked Tahiri if this is the living planet spoken of by the prophet. Tahiri, pitying him, says that it is. The shamed one asks Tahiri to take this news to Yusha. And she says she will, even though she's not exactly sure what she just promised. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Galactic Alliance has won a major victory at Fondor, taking back a planet from the Vong. With Wedge Antilles fainting an attack on the planet Duros, the Vong commanders at Fondor send reinforcements to bolster the Duros defenses. Wedge then uses the Net to contact another alliance fleet, one that swoops in and routes the Vong remaining at Fondor, retaking the planet. This is another step on the Alliance's march toward the Galactic Core. It's become apparent that the Yuzhan Vong, while effectively conquering a slew of planets earlier in their invasion, are now having trouble holding all of them. They're spread too thin. Wedge, Garmbel Iblis, Admiral Sien Sov, and Admiral Krefe plan to exploit this weakness, and that includes their new ally, Admiral Pelion, and the Imperial Remnant. On Yuzhantar, Nen Yim receives a delivery from Supreme Overlord Shimra, one of the Infidel's ships. But it's not just any ship, it's alive, like the Yuzhan Vong vessels. It was discovered on a living planet, but Shimra's jester, Onimi, says the planet and everyone who knew about it were destroyed. Onimi says the Supreme Overlord wants Nen-Yem to develop weapons that can be used against this living technology. Suspicious and curious to learn more about this living planet that she is sure has not actually been destroyed, Nen-Yem meets with the priest Harar, and the two devise a plan. Harar says the prophet Yusha can help Nen-Yem escape Yuzantar and contact the Jedi to help find the planet the Shamed Ones believe will be their salvation. 
A word does indeed get to Naminor, and he's intrigued. Yusha has been losing followers in his Jedi cult, and he needs something new to hold their allegiance. Finding Zunama Sakat could be just the thing. And how much further would his claim to prophecy be validated if he found the planet with the help of the Jedi? Well, the former executor gets word to Tahiri Vela about meeting him on Yuzhantar and accompanying him on a quest to find the living planet. Anxious to fulfill her promise to the dying shamed one on Dagobah, Tahiri agrees to go. After some arguing, the mission is actually sanctioned by the Galactic Alliance, who see Yusha's offer as an opportunity to fracture Shimra's rule from within. But there's a catch. The Jedi will send Corrin Horn with Tahiri, and the former rogue pilot will command the mission. The Jedi infiltrate Yuzhantar and meet with Yusha. He tells them about Nen Yim, the living ship, and her desire to find Zanama Sikot. They agree to bust the Shaper out of Shimra's compound and take her with them. The Prophet's followers create a diversion, allowing Korin and Tahiri to find Nenyam and escape on the living ship, along with Yusha and Harar. Now tensions are high on the journey to Zanama Sikot, especially when Tahiri learns that Nenyam had worked with Mezon Quad in trying to mold her into Ryena. The Jedi and the Shaper come to a truce as they agree that discovering the secrets of Zanama Sikot may be the only way to end this war. The journey takes a toll on the biological ship, but eventually they do make it. The problem is they have no idea where to land on the living planet. Its immense presence in the Force drowns out Corrin and Tahiri's ability to sense Luke, Mara, and Jason. Corrin assumes the Jedi are still on the planet, but he says they'll be searching blindly once they land. Meanwhile, Wedge leads an assault on the shipyards at Bilbringi. The plan is for Wedge's group to enter the system where they'll probably be held in place by Vong interdictors and then engage the enemy. Wedge will then send a th signal through the hollow net to Grand Admiral Pelion and Admiral Crefe, who will jump in with their battle groups and overwhelm the Yuzhan Vong defense. But this time, the Vong aren't so easily fooled. Uh, following Wedge's victory at Fondor, they learn about the Alliance's reliance on the Holonet to coordinate their attacks, and they start destroying all the Holonet relays across the galaxy. When Wedge tries to signal for Pelion and Crefe to join him, he's met with silence. Wedge's battle group is trapped in the system, and his allies waiting out system have no idea what's happening. When the Alliance realizes that the Holonet is down, they try to organize a courier service to reestablish communication. Han and Leia volunteer to lead the effort, and they're joined by three TIE defenders from Pelion's fleet on their way to Bilbringi to help Wedge. Oh, and did we mention that Jaina Solo and her twin son Squadron is also with Wedge's battle group? Korin, Tahiri, Nenyam, Harar, and Yusha set foot on Zanama Seacott for the first time. Nenyem is surprised at how right this planet feels, like she belongs. She begins to explore the planet and is shocked to find a limb tree, a small tree native to the Yuzhan Vong's homeworld. The Shaper discovers other oddities, like how organisms here perform different eco-duties to maintain a balance on the planet. Nenyem can't explain why so many living organisms cooperate in this way. 
but Tahiri postulates that it's through the Force. She says maybe Zanama Seacott is the original homeworld of the Yuzhan Vong. Hearing this, Naminor develops a plan, deducing that the Supreme Overlord, who has already claimed that Zanama Seacott was destroyed, would not be pleased if Nenyem returned with news of her discoveries. But if he destroys the planet, the former executor may win his way back into Shimra's good graces. As he hashes out the details of the plan, Naminor comes across an unexpected sight. Three gigantic steel towers. He instantly recognizes what they are. Hyperdrive field guides. Quickly, Naminor pulls out a hidden villop and places a call to Shimra. Meanwhile, at Bilbringi, Wedge's battle group is taking a pounding. They find what could be a Golan defense station, and Jaina agrees to board the station to see if it's still operational. There she finds a smuggler group that takes her and much of her squadron hostage. The smugglers say they re- they've repaired the weapons on the station as well as the cloaking device. Oh, and that they're going to use equipment from Jaina's fighter to repair the station's hyperdrive so they can flee. The Golan is outside the Vong interdiction field and can escape as soon as the hyperdrive is operational. Back on Zanama Seacott, Nanyem tells Tahiri that she's found a way to connect with the consciousness of the planet, using a method similar to the one that was used to connect Tahiri and Ryena. The Shaper tests her theory, and it works! But the sheer magnitude of experiencing all the memories of a living planet nearly kills Nanyem and it knocks Tahiri unconscious. When she awakes, Nenyem says she's discovered the solution to, quote, everything that concerns us. The Shaper goes off alone to ponder this when she's ambushed by Yusha, who reveals his true identity, Naminor. The former executor crushes Nenyem's skull with a rock. He takes her notes, which includes doomsday instructions for destroying the planet implanting a virus in the massive hyperdrive system. Tahiri discovers the nearly dead Nenyem, who's able to reveal Naminor's betrayal before dying. Tahiri grabs Korin and Harar, and the three race to the massive hyperdrive complex. They split up, allowing Naminor to ambush Tahiri, take her lightsaber, and kill Harar. A short time later, Korin finds Tahiri, and the two Jedi give chase, they find Naminor just as he's about to board a Vong dropship sent by Shimra. A squad of warriors disembark and surround the Jedi, slowly closing in for the kill. But just then, the ground begins to buckle beneath their feet. It's Anama Seacott, in pain from the effects of the virus planted by Naminor. Back at Bill Bringy, Han and Leia arrive to find Wedge's forces outnumbered. The pair and the three TIE defenders attack one of the Vong interdictor cruisers to try to clear an escape path for Wedge's battle group. They strafe the interdictor, but it looks like it won't be enough. Meanwhile, on the Golan space station, Jaina uses a Jedi mind trick to mess up the smugglers' jump coordinates, sending them not away from the battle, but right into it and right beside the Vong interdictor. Now, their only way out is to fight their way to safety. Leia senses Jaina on the Golan, and she and Han arrive in time to free their daughter and her squadron from the smugglers. 
they used the platform to cover Wedge's battle group as the Alliance forces jumped to safety. Back on Zonama Sikat, Korin and Tahiri battle the group of Vong warriors when suddenly the Jade Shadow screams onto the scene from above. As the ship passes overhead, Luke, Jason, and Saba Sebatin leap out to reinforce Korin and Tahiri. Together, the Jedi defeat the warriors, but in the confusion, Naminor sneaks away again. <sighs> he rushes onto the Vong ship and takes off. The Jedi are not so fortunate. Just as the Jade Shadow prepares to leave the atmosphere in hot pursuit, the stars begin to stretch, and Zonama Sikat jumps to hyperspace, taking our heroes with them. Han and Leia return to Mon Calamari and meet up with Lando Calrissian. Lando says he's developed a new type of mobile holonet relay that should be able to avoid Vong detection and destruction in the future. As the three friends talk, Leia suddenly goes silent. She says she can no longer feel Luke, Mara, or Jason in the Force. When Han asks if something terrible has happened, Leia says no, they're not dead, they're just gone. And the story ends on Zonama Sikot. Luke, Mara, Jason, Corin, Tahiri, and the rest of their party are met by... Nanyim? No, it's the planet's consciousness appearing to them in the form of the dead Master Shaper. Sikot informs the Jedi that while it was able to excise the virus from its system, it was not able to stop itself from jumping to hyperspace. So it was a blind jump. And Seacott itself isn't sure where, where it'll stop. Its only advice to the Jedi is to prepare. Time for a break. When we return, Matt and I will talk more about The Final Prophecy by Greg Keyes. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath, Empire's End is the conclusion to the best-selling trilogy about the final days of the Empire. Nora Wexley and her team hunt for Imperial Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who's searching for the mysterious Gallius Rex. And it all culminates at one last battle on the planet Jakku. Will Nora and Ray Sloan be able to stop Rex from implementing the Emperor's final plan? Find out in Aftermath, Empire's End by Chuck Wendig, the final book in the Aftermath trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. And today, Matt and I are talking about The Final Prophecy by Greg Keyes, the 18th book in the New Jedi Order series. Now, Matt, before we go into specifics, 
you said that this is the first time you've read this story. So I want your overall feelings on the final prophecy and what you think as the new Jedi order as a whole is starting to wind down. Uh, the final prophecy is a book is one of the top books in the new Jedi order series for me, maybe not top three, but I could definitely put it in top six. Uh, maybe we'll get to it, but I think keys does an excellent job with character development in this book, especially with the Yuzhan Vong and I hate to use the term, but I don't know another term to use humanizing the Yuzhan Vong um, because I don't care that they're humans. They can still be the Yuzhan Vong, but giving them personality, you know? Sure. Um, so I think he does a really great job of that. Uh, as far as how it fits into the overall, um, this book feels like a setup book. It feels like it's getting us ready for the final it's called the final prophecy, but it's getting us ready for the big finale. And with that, I think it works quite well. Um, and I like that it was tightly focused on a few characters, even though I'm starting to miss some of the other characters we haven't heard from in a while. But how do you feel about it, especially on reread as you're, as you've read this now, you know, a handful of times? Um, so I, I like this book. Um, I agree with you in that I think it's a smart idea that it's pretty narrowly focused on just one band of characters. Yes, Han and Leia and Wedge are in there with the Battle of Bill Bringy, but in all honesty, let's that's definitely the B plot of this book. The main part of the book is Tahiri, Corin, and the three Yuzhan Vong on their journey of discovery at Zanama Sikot. That I like. I think I'm going to stop there for now uh, because we have some other questions going forward that I think might be better for some of the other things that I've got to say about this book. I will say that it feels like, oh my gosh, there's only one book left, but it feels like there's so much left to do. And so finishing this book, I go, oh man, this, uh, the unifying force has a lot of heavy lifting going forward, at least in my mind. Yeah. Um, I would say that is one criticism I have of the new Jedi order as a whole is, and this actually kind of goes into one of the talking points that you wanted to have for this episode, how I had mentioned both off mic and talking to Jay last week that I was never as big a fan of how Zanama Seacott fits in to the new Jedi order and specifically the conclusion of it. I think one of the aspects that I didn't talk about last episode is I don't think they take enough time to thoroughly establish what Zanama Seacott is, and I don't think we spend enough time at the planet. It's only the last three books that were at the planet. And if this is the thing that's going to finish the war between the heroes of our galaxy and the Yuzhan Vong invaders, I just want more time there. 
You know, if they come upon it in like, let's say book 14 and you have five books left or six books left, how Zanama Seacott fits in would work maybe a little better for me. 100% agree. If it's going to be, you know, the final prophecy, the title of the book refers to Zanama Seacott. And if it's going to be that big of a deal, let's bring it up sooner. You know, let's start exploring at least the idea of the planet a little sooner. I feel like they almost spent more time looking for it in the Force Heretic books than they've actually spent on the planet itself. Uh, So I agree with you. I agree with you there. It's not so much. So what you're saying is it's not so much that you don't love the storyline. It's that we just didn't get enough time relative to its overall importance. Yeah, I would say two things that I'm not a fan of with Zadama Seacott. One is that I don't think we spend enough time with it. And two, there are just aspects of it that feel, for lack of a better description, too comic booky to me. It You mentioned there's, that with Jay. Yeah. yeah. There's an aspect of the living planet that just doesn't feel quote unquote Star Wars to me. Um, and it may for, for anyone else, and that's perfectly fine. And even though it's not something that I particularly enjoy. I still accept that this is the storyline. It's what these authors, it's how they figured out how to resolve the conflict in the new Jedi order. What do you know about the, um, this isn't one of our notes, but I'm just going to ask it to you. What do you know about the development of this series? Was it a lot of, they, they gathered all those, I don't remember how many half a dozen authors there were, and they all hashed out the story together or was it more of a, okay, Shane Nix wrote a few and now he's handing it off to Greg Keyes? You know? I mean, all I know is it was in the late 90s. Um, I don't know if they got the all the authors together. I'm assuming they at least invited them to Skywalker Ranch for a couple days. But I do know that there were outlines. I know the keeper of the outlines, for the most part, was James Luceno. Um, who writes The Unifying Force, and he also wrote um, the two-book series like a third of the way in. And I can't remember now off the top of my head what that two-book series was. Yeah, Lucena was uh, Agents of Chaos. One and two? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So some fans of Legends may remember that Luceno wrote the Plagueis book, which a lot of people really enjoy. And Luceno has some books in canon, one of the ones that I can remember off the top of my head, I, th- I think he does the Tarkin book in canon. So Luceno's the keeper of the notes. Um, I know that certain authors were assigned certain things star by star where Anakin is killed. Shoot, who was that author? Denning. Denning said that he was surprised on the outline when... You know, they were, they told him you're during star by star and this is what has to happen. This is what you get. So there was some coordination. Now we're talking late nineties. So it's not like today where let's take the high Republic in Canon today. They invited all the authors up to Skywalker ranch. They had some retreats there at Skywalker ranch. Those authors talk about how they talk almost daily to each other. Now, not all five together, but like if 
Charles Soule has a question for Kevin Scott. They talk. On Zoom? Yeah. yeah. If Claudia Gray has a question for Justina Ireland or Daniel Jose Older, they get together via Zoom, text each other, and I think fans of that series can tell just how coordinated that storyline is. I'm only through phase one. I'm at the very end of phase one. I haven't gotten to phase two yet. I know there additional authors came in. But the New Jedi Order is sort of the luminous project for Legends. And as far as I know, the coordination was obviously much better than it was through most of the 90s <laughs> in Legends. Most of the expanded universe. <laughs> but I don't know how much they coordinated. I know they wanted Zahn in there. Zahn didn't want to. Uh, Zahn, if there is a Mount Rushmore of Star Wars authors, both Legends and Canon, Zahn is on that Mount Rushmore. But Zahn didn't want anything to do with the New Jedi Order. So I know that wasn't your question, but... It kind of was. Yeah, I like it. It, it. Good discussion. But this was much more coordinated than anything else we had seen anything at the time. Else has been. Right. That'd be a fun question to do sometime. Let's not do it today, Aaron, but Mount Rushmore of Star Wars authors. Sure. And I think it has to include both legends and canon because there's yeah. so much crossover, you know. Sure. Yeah. There there you go, folks. There you go. There's something else for you to email in. Who is your Mount Rushmore of Star Wars authors? Aaron, I'm just full of ideas for there you are. fan interaction emails for you, buddy. <laughs> All right. So so let's get back to this book. Um, let's do it. Let's specifically. Do it. Yeah. Um one Tighten of the things here, Yeah. One of the things you wanted to talk about and I think in your notes it said it was one of your favorite aspects of the book, but you wanted more of it, was the interaction specifically between Tahiri and Nenyim. Yeah, uh, we don't talk about this in our summary, really, but one of the revelations that comes out in this book is that the Yuzhan Vong memories that Tahiri inherently has after her shaping at the hands of Meijan Quad and Nenyim are actually Nenyim's memories and she doesn't know it and nen yim had no idea that it was happening either that is barely explored before nen yim is killed it's almost like they realize it they talk about it for a second nen yim's like i gotta go process this she goes off by herself and she's dead yeah that's when Naminor. ha <laughs> What a brutal part to that book, though. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the brutality that sometimes is is uh, exhibited in these books, and there's not a lot. You you mentioned uh, the torture in some of the early books. Yeah, this I think it's worse in the early bo books was... than it is here in the late, later ones. Right. It's it's pretty, like, ugh, gross. So one of the parts that I like most about that is Tahiri's, and, and you can, in my mind, I just see her kind of sitting there trembling with rage because she wants to just attack Nenyim and she's relying on her Jedi training of, you know, I can't do that. I want to kill this person so badly, but I, I can't do it because she realizes that Nenyim was almost used also 
but 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 it still doesn't matter. Tahiri is still ticked, and and it keeps talking about how the Rihanna part of her personality, the Yuzhan Vong part of her personality, really wants to destroy this person sitting in front of her. Which is wild, because so much of that personality was built upon memories that are that person. Exactly. That come from that person. She's so mad, but she's developed empathy, and she doesn't even know that she's developed the empathy. Uh, but then she's like, oh, wait, but this is a person I know intimately because I know everything about her past. Or maybe not everything, but at least the parts that were allowed uh, in. And so it builds this tremendous amount of empathy. And I think that's the theme of the final prophecy. Um, I don't mean to take our little discussion and make it bigger, but... Uh, the theme of this book is a lot of empathy building and learning to understand each other. We learn to understand the Yuzhan Vong a little, and our heroes do as well. And we actually see the Yuzhan Vong, in particular Harar and maybe Nen Yim, starting to understand the side of these inhabitants of the galaxy they've invaded a little bit too. Um, but I love that it's very focused on a personal level with Tahiri and Nen Yim and how Tahiri has to uh, deal with that empathy she's developed and also this rage at at being as violated as she was um, recognizing that Nen Yim was violated too so I think this is a pretty good um, display let's say of the new Tahiri Vela the melding of her two personalities now it's the emotion of the Yuzhan Vong side, the Ryana side, and then, as you said, the empathy and the quest to remain calm that is the Jedi side. I hope in the future we see it work the other way also, that maybe the Jedi predisposition of trying to look at things from all angles, sometimes to the detriment of, of actually making a choice that then the Yuzhan Vong side of Tahiri is like, look, we just have to act. We have to act. I'm not doing this out of any sort of emotional state, but sometimes the worst thing you can do is to just sit there like a bump on a log. I'm going to, I'm going to make this choice and then I'll deal with the consequences of that choice after it happens. So we've seen it now work one way. I'm hoping we get to see it work the other way. That's a really fascinating way to look at it, man, because who was it of the two competing personalities in Tahiri's brain in the in the last book that you and Jay just covered? Which of those personalities is the one that finally snapped Tahiri out of it? It was the it was the Raina side. It was the Rayana one. Yep. She was the one that was like, dude, we're in this together. We just have to do this, right? We gotta we gotta come to some sort of agreement here. So that's the first and probably the biggest character interaction in this book but the other one like you were talking about is Harar and Corrin Horn and the conversations that they have where I don't think you get as much of Corrin kind of understanding the Yuzhan Vong side but you do get a decent amount of Harar trying to understand the side of the inhabitants of this galaxy isn't that cool uh, there's even a quote there where he says early on in their some of their initial discussions, he says, understanding is the essence of enlightenment. Uh, 
Harar says that. And they get to the point where they're almost like amicable. There's the part where they're exploring the hyperdrive field guides and they're like joking around with each other. Yeah, at first, Corrin can't understand why Harari wants to go there because they're abominations. And Harar's like, yeah, I, I know they are, but, it, you know, I feel it's my duty to at least kind of learn what these are and why you guys rely on them. There's a part in there, Nominor spying on Corrin and Harar as they're in the hyperdrive chambers. And Harar says, perhaps we should just fire the engines. That should get their attention. For Harar, that's a big deal saying that because it's a machine. It's an abomination, right? And Nominor hears this and it says, a chill went up Nominor's spine. From his tone, Harar was clearly joking. Uh, but that was insane, Nominor says. Um, the fact that a Yuzhan Vong would even mention casually using machinery means that that Yuzhan Vong person has gone insane. That's the only conclusion Nominor can come to. I, I, I picture Harar saying that with the ultra serious face that the Yuzhan Vong seem to always have, you know, having Corin sort of do a double take and look over there and then just, I just imagine Nominor or I'm sorry, not Nominor, but Harar trying to smile and wink right. real quick. <laughs> he winks, but he can't. So he does it with two eyes because he doesn't know how, yeah. but it's, it's, it's the grotesque face that the Yuzhan Vong have. So no the, nose. Yeah. The smile and wink looks like the most disgusting thing that Corrin's ever broken, that Corrin's ever seen. Corrin's like, Oh dude, keep that mouth closed, buddy. Close mouth smile. Yeah. Tight lip smile. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's work on that for a second. Yeah. Harar. <laughs> No more comedy for you. No more comedy. <laughs> Harar's a great character. He's he's one of the best examples of the character building interactions that we find in these books. He he was he he kind of came in and out of the story up to this point, right? Like Yeah, he was he wasn't in many of the books, but he would come in for just a handful of pages like every third or fourth story. And he would make an impact. I mean, we understand he's in a position of authority and everything, but then he's gone just as quickly as he arrived. Yeah, like you're saying. So that Greg Keyes, could, he takes this guy who hasn't had a ton of involvement and he's a Yuzhan Vong, which we're pretty predisposed to hate. And by the end of the book, I'm actually mourning his loss. I'm sad that he's dead. I didn't want him to die. Because and, he's uh, one of the few Yuzhan Vong that is starting to think outside of his culture to start is. trying to consider other ways to finish this war. At first we had Nenyam, now we have Harar. And of course, because they're the first two that start thinking outside of that, they're killed. Of course. I'll add one more to the list of uh, Vua Rapung early on. Oh yeah, and he's killed. You, you, but yeah, let's face he's it. As well. Let's face it. As soon as he started working with Anakin, I think everyone reading the book, as you're reading the book, it's like, okay, when's this guy gonna die? You know, yeah, he, there's no he's way he's making it out of here. There's no <laughs> way he's making his way out of this. <laughs> what do you think of that combination of Harar and Corin Horn, just in general? Um, I liked the interaction. I liked some of the things that Corin was talking about to Harar specifically about Ithor way back at the beginning of the series. Corrin asked him for a species that venerates life as much as you do and thinks that anything artificial 
is an abomination. Why do you guys constantly go into these worlds and change the biology of these worlds? And how could you go to Ithor and completely wipe out all life on this idyllic garden-like planet? On some level, you know, Harar is taken aback. It's clear that he's thought about some of these things himself. He has some struggles with the methods that the Yuzhan Vong use. That we need to, we needed to do that to these planets to make them into our image of what life is supposed to be. Which to them is the image of the gods. They were ordained to do this. And and that you have know, to destroy first in order to create. Remember, they, de- they destroy Belkadan. They destroy Ithor. Now, they never remade Ithor as far as we're told in these books. But remember, the first one that they do this to is Belkadan. They completely wipe that planet out. Remember that like yellow mist that it was killing everything yeah, on the yeah. world? And it did that for weeks. And then when the mist and the fog finally died out, then all of a sudden this new life started springing forth on Belgadan. They completely terraform the planet. And they do the same thing with Duro. I was they do say the same thing with Duro. Duro too, yeah. And they say Duro was, was a wreck before we came to it. I think there's a mention of that either in this book or the last one. Duro's was a mess before we came to it. We did you guys a favor by cleaning Same with Coruscant. Out. Right. They think yeah, they did well, them a, the pa- a favor. Yeah, yeah. Look at this. We're bringing life back. It rains on Coruscant now. But yeah, those conversations are really interesting. Um, not as many as between Tahiri and Nenyam, but the ones we get in this book, those parts are page turners. Absolutely. Uh, I love that the way you described it. They're page turners. It's not the action. Although these, this book does have some great action sequences. I think Keys does action very well. Um, but it's the it's those interactions that kept me going, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Oh my, this is great. This is great. And you've got Corrin going, huh. And you've got Harar going, huh. And uh, that back and forth is, is, is so refreshing. We've talked about some Corrin Horn books, I Jedi, I'm not a fan of. And it's because- Don't let Corrin Jay hear that. We know that's one of his he, favorites. He knows. He knows by this point. And every episode I'm on with you, Aaron, we have to get our digs in at Corin somehow. Yep. Um, how do I get all the Corin books? That that was a happy coincidence. Uh, but anyways, with Corin in, in like I Jedi, it's set up where he is the ultimate, almost like omniscient hero of the story to the point where he's giving Luke Skywalker advice and he's putting Luke Skywalker in his place. Like everything Corin Horn says in I Jedi is just like pure gold. And so you get him in this book and he has these, huh, moments with Tahiri as well. And that's super refreshing. I love that. So my boy, Naminor, we're, we're now back to the triple cross, I think. Oh my gosh. Which cross are we on now? We, we, double, uh, we had a double cross, triple cross. This might be like the six, sixth cross at some point. I don't even know anymore. I even had to like break character reading the summary when his like Nominor escaped again. But I yeah, he's like, I love okay, him. Back to Shima. I just, I love him. <laughs> what do you love about Nominor? Just gush about him for a second. 
I don't know. In my in my opinion, he's just the ultimate weasel. He's he's just he's the ultimate weasel. He doesn't believe in anything other than himself. That's and it. Just surviving. Yeah, just a tremendous self confidence and his ability to survive and make it another day. I just I love the Yu Shaw prophet storyline. Trying to needle Shimra from from below, trying to you know organize this revolution from within. I don't know. I, I always just found that funny. And that the it's funny, and the whole revolution is just for himself though. He's constantly like recruiting new cannon fodder that he's just happy to send to their deaths because he doesn't believe in anything. <laughs> he doesn't care, including the sanctity of life especially the sanctity of life. He recruits these poor shamed ones and gets them all riled up and believing in him and then just sends them to die. On a, on a, a more general, larger level, what is one of the reasons why many people have an affinity to the bad guy, have an affinity to evil characters in our entertainment? It's an escape this is something I would never do. Namanor is the exact opposite of me. That's one of the reasons I like him. It's an escape. It, it's it's a way for me to sit there and try to imagine if I would do if I was in his position. If you didn't have a conscience, and if I was in Namanor's position, is this what I what I would do? Right. Yeah. And could I be happy? You're absolutely right. That is why we love the villains. Uh, We maybe see a little bit of our own carnal, you know, wicked nature that seethes within us that sometimes brews up when someone cuts us off in traffic or something like that. But we always push it back down because, you know, we we end up siding with the better better angels of our nature. I think Abraham Lincoln said that term. Um, Every single person to some extent is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We, absolutely. Yeah, Every single person. Within us. <laughs> the Mr. Hyde part part is the part you don't let out, but it's the part you want to so oh, badly. It's kind of fun. Yep. <laughs> Do you ever like when you're in the shower or something, you like argue with somebody in your head and you like completely destroy them in your argument? And you, <laughs> Dude, I... A lot of people sing in the shower. I'm saying, you know, occasionally I will sing or hum in the shower. I will have arguments in the shower for stuff that happened during the day at work. And I will <laughs> I will argue out loud in the shower. And you will destroy that person. And they have no idea <laughs> that you just eviscerated them. Yeah. I use language in the shower that I do not use in everyday society. Oh, it's, I refuse to believe that, Aaron Motes. I refuse to believe that. This is a family show. There are four-letter words that I will let out in the shower <laughs> by myself that I don't use at work, that I don't use here at home, that I don't use on the podcast. The only other time I do it is when I'm alone in the car and someone cuts me off. Yep. You're letting a little bit of that uh, Mr. Hyde out. Yeah. So before we wrap up here, Matt, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in this book? Because you wrote some pretty extensive notes from your reading here. Um, Was there anything that you wanted to cover? Um, 
I do I do love the little bit of a relationship. It's not a little bit um, between Tahiri and Corin. Now they really haven't interacted too much since the since Anakin's death. Since Remember? the locker incident. Since the locker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so Corin's kind of like been there from the beginning for these two. But uh, we haven't seen much. Of, he obviously, you know, he he cared for her a lot in the weeks following kind of her traumatic experience. He was there for her. Um, but then they've kind of been separated and Corin's been out of the story for so long. She comes to him in this book and she asks him to be her Jedi master, which is usually something that you don't see. You see it going the other way around, the master taking on the apprentice. And you have a very reluctant Corin to agree to something like that. Uh, he takes some convincing, and even then it's conditional. He's like, well, I can do it for right now because we don't have any Jedi Masters here, but I got to talk to Luke and see if it's all right to do this on a permanent basis. And I wonder, Aaron, what you thought of that interaction, how that all went down, and maybe Corin's reluctance uh, to to take on something like that. On the whole, the legend stories that take place after Return of the Jedi we don't get much at all about master and apprentice. It's basically Luke taking his two nephews. It's Mara taking Jaina. As we go further along, at the end of the Dark Nest trilogy, Leia asks Saba to be her master. But we don't have many master-padawan-type relationships. This is one of the very few. And I didn't really remember it from earlier readings. Unfortunately, if I remember correctly, nothing really comes of it. You know, I've already talked about the Darkness trilogy here on this podcast. I did it back in 2022. They're not Master and Apprentice then. Oh, that that's another like missed opportunity to me, you know? There's, I see some, some uh, potential for it to be like Obi-Wan and Anakin in the sense of you've got a really special apprentice here uh, in a really unique situation. To hear he's not the chosen one, but you got a pretty unique situation in a young Jedi who is also part Yuzhan Vong. And then you, on the other hand, you've got a very reluctant uh, Jedi Knight taking on the role of master. And Corrin Horn is an interesting Jedi Knight because he's always been a bit reluctant to fully embrace that lifestyle. He's he's always tried to maintain kind of the old Corsac police officer Corrin Horn. And the Jedi stuff, the Force use is kind of just part of that. And so I found a lot of potential for that to be a really compelling storyline. Um, and it's... Slightly disappointing if that nothing comes of that. Well, it's time to go. But first, we do have two new Star Wars character groups. And they come from Charlie H., who sent in a fighter squadron and a road trip crew. Yeah, Charlie. Okay, here's his fighter squadron called Zenith Squadron. 
Okay, you've got one flight leader and also Zenith One, Commander Wedge, and Tilly's. I know you like that one. I know you like Wedge being right up there. Just check him off the list. Zenith Two is his buddy Tycho Selshu. Zenith Three is Baron Sunter Fell. And Zenith Four is a character we're getting a lot of here, Jagged Fell. Uh, two Flight. They have uh, Karth Onassi as the flight leader in Zenith 5. He's from the Knights of the Old Republic games, so I don't know who he is. Uh, then Zenith 6, you have Juno Eclipse from The Force Unleashed, so I don't know who that is either. But Zenith 7 is Jaina Solo, and Zenith 8 is Saba Sabatine. And then in 3 Flight, as their flight leader in Zenith 9, you've got Saisi, I've heard it pronounced a bunch of different ways, Saisi Tin from the Jedi Council. Zenith 10 is Plo Koon, also of the Jedi Council. Zenith 11, Aaron, is Darth Maul. I'd like to know how good of a... Yeah, I'd like to know how good of a fighter pilot Darth Maul is. And how he's going to be in a flight with Plo Koon and Saucy Tin. Uh, And Zenith 12, maybe to a lesser degree, but also interesting, Boba Fett. Their command ship would be the cruiser Anakin Solo and commanded by Grand Admiral Thrawn. Yeah, it's, it's nice that Anakin Solo got a cruiser named after him. Well, that's a great fighter squadron, Charlie. That's awesome. Good job, Charlie. He also sent in a rope trip crew, and that is uh, Anakin Skywalker, the driver. Between Anakin and Han, they would never let anyone else drive. So Anakin's driving. Cal Scarretta, a Mandalorian who helped train the clone troopers in Legends, is on snack duty. Lando Calrissian is on the itinerary. And I'm sure he's not going to get us into any trouble whatsoever on this road trip. Thrawn's reading the map. And Princess Leia, Organa Solo, is manning the radio. Nice. What do you think Leia's go-to station is on the radio? I mean, teenage Leia, you know, went through a punk phase. She went through a punk phase. A A little garbage, a little paramour. There you go. Early no doubt. (laughs) yeah yeah because there needs to be something alternative something even a little grungy um yeah well charlie thank you very much for the email now listener if you have a favorite star wars character squadron you'd like to share with us or if you have a question for the show you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1 Remember, Mount Rushmore. we're talking Mount Rushmore. Hey, <laughs> Star Wars character and their favorite and their favorite album. Or what's what's no, oh, what's yeah, on their yeah, yeah. no yeah. mixtape. What's on their mixtape? Give me three songs off of their mixtape. They're called playlists these days, Aaron. Yeah, I know. Uh, we got so <laughs> many Look, kids these days don't know the agony of just having a cassette in the cassette recorder and listening to the radio for like hours just for the song that you want to come up and then hit record. But then you only have two minutes left on the tape and it's a two minute and 30 second song. Oh, it's awful. And you cut off the end. Yep. Or you get the DJ's voice talking over the beginning of the song. Oh, and you just want to, you want to kill him. You want to kill him. (laughs) We are getting the nominor of Aaron Motes here today, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) we've drawn it out of him. Matt and I are also showing our ages on this show. (laughs) 
Well, Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. So what's coming up on Davos Fingers? We continue our coverage of The Name of the Wind from the Kingkiller Chronicles. So episodes are coming out every three weeks. I hope you'll join us. You can find us, if I can just go over to that part, Aaron, on uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts or kind of wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Podbean. If you want to contact, or you can find us on YouTube as well if you want to listen to episodes. Um, if you want to talk to us or in other ways, get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Davos fingers, also on blue sky, Facebook. Uh, our email address is we are Davos fingers at gmail.com. We'd love to have you over check out our, we start out at, we started out and are mostly still a podcast dedicated to a song of ice and fire, which is the books that game of thrones are based on. We've covered all of the books in that universe, which is why we've now switched over to the King Killer Chronicle while we wait for more books to come out by George R.R. R. Martin. But uh, you can also check out our complete back catalog of A Song of Ice and Fire content. It's spoiler free for those of you who haven't read the books before. Did you guys start Davos Fingers? Dance of Dragons was already out when you started it, right? It was. It was pretty recent, though, still. So we thought. Yeah, by the time we get through all these books, we're for sure going to have the next book, Winds of Winter, and probably Dream of Spring won't be far behind. We were sweet summer children. Well, coming up on the next episode, K2 and I will wrap up the New Jedi Order series with The Unifying Force by James Luceno. It'll be the final episode of the podcast for this year. You can look forward to that episode coming out on December 22nd. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge today. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>